Awesome. Uh, feel free to keep chatting after the service. And uh, we're, we're in the middle of this little series in the book of Nehemiah. And uh, we're going to dive straight in today. So if you have your Bibles, or if you have uh, an iPad, or an iPhone, or a non-Apple device, if those still exist, I'm sure they do, then please feel free to turn to Nehemiah chapter 4, and the reading for this morning will come up on the screen. Hey, Ventures fam. We're reading you guys some of Nehemiah chapter 2, starting in verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of the king Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad? When the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruin and the gates have been destroyed by fire. The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven. And I answered the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city of Judah, where my ancestors are buried, so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, how long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of the trans-Euphrates, so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And I may have a letter to the Asaph, the keeper of the royal park, so he would give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request. So I went to the governors of the trans-Euphrates gave them the king's letter, and the king also sent army officers and cavalry with me. Then we're going to go to verse 17. I'm going to be from verse 17 to verse 20. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and the gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me, and the king has said to me, they replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. And when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite, official in Geshem the Arab, heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing? They asked. Are you building against the king? I answered them saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Cool. That was actually the wrong reading for today. <laughs> I was just thinking, how could I slickly like, transition into the correct reading for today other than to let it go all the way to the end? So thank you uh, to Vic for reading that. Now, very quickly, at double speed, I'm going to read for you a reading that you're going to remember every word of. Right? Okay, Nehemiah chapter 4. If you've been here the whole series, by now you should have been going, hold on a minute, we passed number 2 a long time ago. Okay, here we go. Opposition to the rebuilding, Nehemiah chapter 4 verse 1. When Sambalat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore the wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? 
Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, what they are building, even a fox climbing up on a wall would break it down, their wall of stones. Hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in the land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sights, for they've thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. But when Sambalat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs of the walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were angry. They were plotted again, then they plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God, and he posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of our laborers is giving out, and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there amongst them, and we will kill them and put an end to this work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, whatever you turn, they will attack us. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall and exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. And after I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, for he is great and awesome, and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. When our enemies heard that we were well aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to their own work. From that day on, half of the men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armors. Uh, the officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Who were, and those who carried uh, materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other, and each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who surrounded the trumpet stayed with me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out, and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. So we continued the work with half the men holding spears from the first light to dawn till the stars came out. At that time, I also said to the people, have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so they can serve us as guards by day and by workers by night. Neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapons even when he went to water. Okay, let's pray. <laughs> Father, thank you for Nehemiah. Thank you for this book. Thank you for teaching us from it. And uh, as we think today about spiritual warfare and what it means to stand against opposition, would you speak to us, we pray, in Jesus' uh, name. All right. Well, good morning. Uh, my name's Ben. If I've not said hello to you before, uh, I am the pastor here at Vintage Pasadena, and it's great to be with you uh, as we continue this little series. And you've just heard a whole bunch of the start of Nehemiah. We could have just kept it on read the whole thing. We'll save you a few more chapters. So the story of Nehemiah is a story of amazing leadership. It's about a man who is called by God to return to Jerusalem to see it rebuilt, see God's kingdom come in a particular way, in a particular time. And last week, we talked about how God built unity, how God built togetherness, how God built his kingdom as people worked together in Nehemiah chapter 3. Um, but today, we're going to see, we just did, how opposition can come when God's kingdom uh, advances. And we're going to talk a little bit about what it means to stand firm to be full of the Spirit, to oppose the forces of darkness that sometimes can wreak havoc in our lives and in the world uh, around us. So uh, I don't know if you noticed, but we were introduced very quickly there, to, in fact, in both readings, to a guy called Sam Ballot. Right, Sam Ballot is actually a very well-known guy in the Old Testament, uh, and the Old Olden Testament, and also in um, other ancient readings, uh, writings. Uh, Sam Ballot was part of a family that governed Samaria. 
And if you know a little bit about like Samaritans and Samaria, you know that there was a real rivalry between Jews and Samaritans. If you know the story when Jesus talks about the good Samaritan, the irony of the story of the good Samaritan is that there is a good Samaritan, right? The Jews did not like the Samaritans at all. And right, this is where it comes from. This is the heart of where that conflict lies. So when Sambalat hears that there is rebuilding, that the kingdom is coming, he gathers together the rest of his gang, who all have really cool names. I don't know if you spotted. Tobiah the Ammonite and Gisham the Arab. I feel like we should have some names like that in our church as well. Maybe like Matt the Californian. Although that's probably not true, is it? So I botched that one. No worries. But when they hear that the the temple is being rebuilt, that the walls are being repaired, what do they do? They mock. They come out with straight-up insults. And then, verse 7, that turns from insult into murderous threat, absolute opposition against the Jewish people. And on one hand, what you have is that God is advancing his kingdom. Things are happening. It's going well. Like God is pushing back the powers of darkness as Jerusalem is rebuilt. And on the other hand, we have opposition, and we have pain, and we have confusion. And there's a really important theological principle that we need to grasp hold of right in the middle of this. And it's simply this, is that opposition, in a spiritual sense, is normally part of what it means to be a Christian. That it's normally part of the Christian story. That we live in an epic battle as Christians. Like, think Lord of the Rings, but better if that's possible. We live in this huge story that's unfolding in the spiritual realms between good and evil, between God and the devil. It's a story that's been going on for millions of years. It's a story that is just all around us. Now, it is also a story that's very one-sided before you suddenly panic and think, oh no goodness, what's going on in the world today? In this story, it's a bit like the Dodgers versus, I don't know, the five-year-old East Pasadena one-legged dog's team or something. You know, that's, that's the kind of level of discrepancy in the battle, but it is a battle nonetheless. And we're going to talk this morning about how that battle works because what we find is that in the kingdom of God, whenever the kingdom is moving forward, whenever we are seeing light conquer darkness, whenever we're seeing God's kingdom come on earth as it in heaven, we also expect that the devil will kick off, will give us problems, will try and put something in the way. Uh, Jesus talks about it like this in the Beatitudes. He says, Matthew 5.10, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or 2 Timothy 3.12, In fact, everybody who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now that seems a bit scary. And the word uh, persecution is a word that gets banded around, and to be honest, I think it's been banded around in a few wrong ways over the last year. But the implication is kind of this, that if we are people who live righteously, which means in the kingdom, in the right principles, the right justice structures, the right priorities of God, if we are people who have a relationship with Jesus, in Christ Jesus, then we will face opposition. Now, that isn't the, diff- the same as a, a guy who came to see me the other week. when He, he, he came to see me and he had like, like a black eye and like a broken nose. And I said to him, dude, like what happened to you this week? And he said, well, you know, there was this guy, he got in my way, and he wouldn't back down, and, uh, you know, I had to stand my ground as a Christian, so I I stood my ground, and I punched him in the face, Um, and then he punched me back in the face, and he said, it's it's difficult when you're persecuted, isn't it? I said, yes, don't think that's what we mean by persecution. Persecution is not the consequences of sin, 
right? When you behave really badly, you should expect that there will be consequences to your behavior. We teach our kids that all the time, right? But what Paul and Jesus are both getting at is the sense that when we stand rightly, humbly, justly in the kingdom, the enemy will do things to try um, and get at us. In fact, it might even want to say that no advance of the kingdom goes unopposed in some way. No advance of the kingdom of God will ever go unopposed. And so let's just look for a few minutes about some of the ways that spiritual warfare can impact our lives. And this isn't exhaustive. There are lots of different ways that spiritual warfare plays out. But let's just look at a few to get today. Um, The first is this. It's that spiritual warfare, opposition can come from outside, outsider opposition. So in verse 2, we just heard these amazing uh, threats. Uh, I felt like they should have had a good accent. Something should have been like this. What are these feeble Jews doing? <laughs> Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish it a day? Can they bring the stones back to life? In fact, maybe they should have had a different accent or something as well. I don't know. Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, Why are they building? Even a fox climbing up on the wall would break down their walls of stone. I'll never do an accent again. That was it. I've, I've, note to self, never do accent in church. That's bad. But there's this sense, isn't there, of mocking that comes. And maybe you've, you know what that looks like as well. You know, when you stand and you say to your friends or your family or the people you work with, hey, I follow Jesus. You know, I'm going to live ways that honor Jesus. Maybe you won't know what it's like when people don't get it, right? They don't understand. Even maybe as you try and tell your friend about Jesus and like that person just completely like glazes over or actually gets very angry with you. You know, that's what it can feel like when, when it's outside. You know, we, we think sometimes, don't we, that it's just like us and our persuasiveness trying to talk to someone about Jesus or trying to live in a particular way. Like, I'm not going to get drunk or I'm not going to sleep around or I'm not going to take drugs because I want to honor Jesus. And actually, we realize that our interface of how that works when we talk to other people can be like a spiritual battle. It can be about the powers of darkness that are going on behind us. And it can be very painful, right? I mean, if you work in a workplace, and some of you do, where being a Christian is really hard because people push back at you all the time, where living into kingdom values is really hard because people push back at you, where people literally will threaten you and you will have to face opposition. It can be very painful. That's the outsider opposition that they faced. But the second type is actually insider opposition, and that can be more painful. You know, like I kind of have come to expect as a Christian living in the West that lots of people who I live with do not understand what I do. When I announce to my family, many of whom are not Christians, hey, I'm going to become a pastor, they laughed a lot. And they were very confused and they were very concerned and they were somewhat a little bit angry in places as well. You know, that's what it can feel like when you have outside, but when sometimes the opposition can come from close at home as well, the people who do get it the people who are part of the kingdom story with you. It says in verse 12, when the Jews lived near them came and they said 10 times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. There's no encouragement, right? There's no, you can do this, this is gonna be all right, God's on your side. It's basically, you are going to fail, it's going to be bad, it's going to be terrible. When opposition comes not just from those who are far away from us, but comes from those closest to us, those who are part of the kingdom, actually that can be really painful, right? That can be really painful. I was, had a coffee with a pastor um, recently, and he was talking about this whole kind of face mask thing and inside-outside thing in their church. 
And he said that he said in, in their church, the, the, like they've had, he's had people who have been on this amazing journey of seeing people come to faith. They've seen this church build. They've seen it grow really well. And they've got people who are now next to him going, if you make me wear a face mask, and I will not come to your church. In fact, I'm going to leave your church and go somewhere else. He's got other people at the other side who are also leaders in his community going, if you allow people to take off their face masks, I'm leaving your church and I'm going to another church. And he says, like, when those, when those daggers come, not from afar, people who don't get them, but when they come from inside the community of faith, actually those can really hurt. And interestingly, it's the, it's the same, it's the other way around. There's no better encouragement than encouragement that comes from a brother or sister, right? You know, when someone sends a nice email to me and says, oh, I just really love what your church is doing over there in Pasadena, I'm like, cool, thank you, that's great. But you know, when someone who knows you or knows me calls me out and says, I just saw what you did and I know you, and that was fantastic, thank you for doing that. That's the most encouragement we can get, right? Discouragement or encouragement that comes from inside really matters. But there's also a third way that spiritual opposition can come to us. And that's actually not through another person, but it's actually directly into our emotions. When the enemy seeks to discourage us, to dissuade us, to get us, right? You know, Jesus, um, when he's just about to embark on the most amazing three years in human history, his public ministry on the earth, to prepare for it, he goes and spends 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. And whilst he's out in the wilderness, the tempter, the devil, comes and tries to distract him, tries to knock him off course. And we see these kind of three particular temptations that the devil puts at Jesus. The first one is he says to him, hey, why don't you, who are fasting, you're hungry, why don't you just turn the stones into bread? Why don't you go for the pleasure? Why don't you go for the thing that will satisfy your human need? And Jesus says, no, I'm not going to do that because I want to fast. I want to focus on the Lord. Then the devil comes to him and says, hey, well, what about your ego? What about your pride? Why don't you just like fall off the side of the building and allow the angels to sweep you up and you can fly through the sky? Jesus says, I'm not going to test God in that way. I'm going to have a, be a person uh, of faith. And then finally, the devil comes at Jesus and says, hey, well, what about if I gave you all of the earth? What if I gave you all of the things around you? What if I gave you loads of material possessions? Would you bow down and worship me? And Jesus says, no, I will not because I want to honor and worship God. You know, we too can feel that sometimes, can't you? You know, have you ever found yourself in a time when maybe even things are going really well? You know, you found yourself, the kingdom's going well, you know, work's going well or family life's going well. And then suddenly out of nowhere, you can have a thought, you know, an emotion. Something can just, can just trigger you out of the, absolutely out of nowhere, and you can find yourself in this place of darkness. You know, a few weeks ago, I just went through this period for, for about a week when I just could not sleep. Like, I just couldn't. I don't know what happened. But suddenly, in the darkest places, I, you know, I found myself just outside my house in the middle of the night, trying not to wake up everyone else I live with, just walking up and down the street, praying, like saying, God, why am I in this place of darkness? And I feel like sometimes we can see those actions when, when we get tempted. You know, when the devil just says, hey, why don't you, why don't you just do this thing, right? You know, no one will even notice. It's really easy. Why don't you just take a little shortcut over there? It'll be okay. And actually, we are, we are to recognize that these are not just physical, but they're spiritual forces that often go into these places of temptation. So how do we deal with it? This is not a sermon to scare you, to freak you out, to try and make you feel fearful about darkness and kingdom forces and make you look for the devil under your bed when you go to sleep tonight. That's not the point of today. It's actually to talk about how we deal with these things. 
So how do we deal when the tempter discourages us, when we feel dark? Well, here's the first thing, and it's a thing that comes up throughout Nehemiah over and over again, and it's this, is that we have to be a people who have a priority of prayer. Like Nehemiah, right, is an amazing leader. We've read about two bits of his life today. You know, when he hears the bad news, when he hears that the city of Jerusalem is falling down, what does he do? He prays. He falls on his knees. And you know, it's always a sign of a good leader, right? This is just a quick leadership aside. If you are a leader, you will impart your priorities and your culture on the people you lead, right? If you're a parent, you'll know that. If you're a business leader, you'll hope for that. That actually the people will follow where you lead. And that's exactly what we find today, right? Nehemiah goes into prayer, and when he's leading the people and they hear the bad news, do you notice what they do in verse 4? Hear us, O Lord, for we are despised. The people follow Nehemiah's lead. They hear the opposition, they see the problem, and they drop to their knees and pray. Now, I think it's pretty much fair to say that they hadn't fully grasped the theological implications of prayer. If you go on to read what they prayed, uh, it's a bit weird, to be honest. Um, It's a little bit unlike how we pray in the New Testament about forgiveness and grace and all of those kind of things. But yet they realize that actually if they are to see something change, if they are going to conquer the darkness, the result is probably not going to be fast enough, strong enough, good enough teamwork, good enough education, and that's how we're going to do it. In fact, what they realize, and it says in verse 20, that is the battle is that belongs to the Lord. That God is the one who goes before them. That if they're going to see their nation transformed, if they're going to see the kingdom come on earth, then it isn't going to be key because they were good enough. But it's actually going to be because God's presence comes, because God's kingdom comes, because God sovereignly acts on the earth. And you know, that's why you know, here at Vintage, we, we're very keen to say that prayer will always be at the center of who we are. You know, before we ever had church services, we stopped and we prayed together. Every month, third Thursday of the month, we get together and we pray and we fast for a whole day. And we meet to pray here at nine o'clock in the morning and then we have an online Zoom thing at 12 o'clock at lunchtime. And the point of it is to recognize that, you know what, Finch's Pasadena is not gonna change the world around it because we're all clever enough or beautiful enough or I don't know, whatever else enough we might be. But it's going to come because God's kingdom comes when God moves on the earth. And how we pray matters. You know, Paul in Ephesians chapter 6, when he talks about darkness, he talks about spiritual forces, he says this, he says, take your stand. Take your stand against the enemy. In fact, he says, because your fight is not against flesh and blood. Your fight's not against each other. Your fight's not against the powers of Pasadena and the rulers and the police or you know, the people who impose things on your life. That's not your battle. Your battle is a spiritual battle against the powers of darkness in the spiritual realms. And that's why Paul says, so put on your armor. Daily, sometimes I feel like I have to do it almost hourly at times of my life. He says, take the belt of truth of what is true and put it around your waist. 
It says, take up the breastplate of righteousness to live in the right ways in the kingdom. Take the helmet of salvation that guards your mind. Man, do I need the helmet of salvation sometimes. Do you need the helmet of salvation, right? That stops with the doubts and the fears and the naggings and the lies of the enemy. It says, take the shield of faith. Take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, the very Bible which we base our faith on, and fit your feet with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. But those are spiritual dynamics that we play in. And the beautiful thing is, as James tells us in James 4.7, is as we take our stand, and this is to encourage you this morning, we're told that when we resist the devil, he will flee. He will flee. You don't have to live in fear of the enemy at all. You don't. I feel like sometimes Christians either say, like, spiritual warfare is overwhelming and we're going to get fixated by the darkness, or we ignore the darkness altogether and we live you know, gleefully unaware. Paul says, fix your eyes on this spiritual battle in ways and stand firm and the devil will leave you alone. So we pray. But we don't just pray. We actually also act. Do you notice in verse 6, what it actually says is the outcome of the prayer was that the people worked with all their heart. Right? Isn't it easy sometimes to pray for things and just say, hey, God, there is an overwhelming situation over there. Can you just fix it for me, right? You sort it out. I'll be here. Everything will be okay. Actually, what we find throughout the Bible, and probably many of you will know this from your experience, is that when we pray, we are usually part of the solution to the prayer, Right, The normal way that God acts on earth is not independently of us, but with us to make changes. Right, That's how it worked. And this is really important. Right, If you want to grow as a Christian in 2021, if you haven't already, to understand the joining together of prayer and action, because they are fundamentally important parts of what it means to follow Jesus. Now, what do you see? It says, when the people prayed, it says in verse 9, they prayed to God and they posted a guard. They prayed to God and they took action. If you turn to Isaiah 38, Hezekiah is a king of Israel. He's about to die. And Isaiah goes to see him. Sorry, Isaiah. I'll get it right. Isaiah goes to see him. And and the king cries out and he says, say to God, give me 15 more years of life. I'd love to live for 15 more years. And the word of God comes through Isaiah. Yes, you may live for 15 more years. And just as Isaiah is about to leave, he says, okay, right. He says to all the temple staff, uh, the, the, the king's staff, okay, you will live for 15 more years. So give him the medical treatment, sort out his wounds, help him out, and he'll live. See, prayer, prophecy, and action. Another one, Acts chapter 27. You know, when Paul is going to prison in Rome and he's bound up on a ship and the ship goes through a massive storm and it's about to sink and the angel of the Lord comes to Paul and says, okay, Paul, it's okay, no one will die today. And what does Paul say? Paul says to the people on the ship, it's no worries, stay on the ship and no one will die. It's not common sense or prayer, it's actually fact and prayer, it's faith and prayer, and action, and reason all together. You know, when Peter speaks to that amazing crowd in Acts chapter 2, you know, Pentecost Sunday, the Holy Spirit's moving, he's full of the Holy Spirit, he preaches to the crowd in Jerusalem, and he says this, you know, Jesus 
came because God sent him in order to die so that your sins could be forgiven. And then in the same breath, he says, you Jews, you killed the author of life. That prayer and action, heaven and earth are not separate things. We join together. And I feel like they're joined together. We sometimes want to say, okay, well, we either are going to be a people of faith or we're going to be a people of action. We're either going to be a people of prayer or we're going to be a people who do the right thing. When in fact, doing the right thing and praying in faith are usually joined together, right? They're normally the same things. When you pray, you should expect that God will want to work through you by by very normal means. That's why Christian doctors are some of my favorite people on the earth, right? Because they get it. They get it, right? They work with all of the medical science available to them and they pray for healing, and that's how it works. Um, excuse me for a really terrible story for a minute, but I feel like as a pastor, occasionally I'm allowed to tell a story that I found on the internet that's not that good, but has a good point. Okay. So one day, a storm descended on a small town, and the downpour soon turned into a flood. And as the waters rose, the local pastor of the church knelt in prayer on his church porch. What oh, to have one of those. Uh, surrounded by water, Uh, By and by, uh, one of the people in the town came to see him. One of them came up in the street in a canoe and said, hey, pastor, you better get into the canoe because the waters are rising fast. But no, said the pastor, I have faith in the Lord. He will save me. Still the waters rose, and the pastor is up on the balcony at this point, and he's praying and he's asking God to move. When another guy zips past on a motorboat, come on, pastor, We need to get you out of there as quickly as possible because the dam is about to break any minute. Once again, the pastor's totally unmoved. He says, I'm going to stay here. The Lord will save me. After a while, the dam does break. The flood rushes over the church until only the top of the steeple, just that tiny cross, is poking out. Um, Not in LA, I don't think, this church. And he holds on. He's holding on by one hand to the cross on the top of the steeple. And then a state trooper arrives in a helicopter and says, come on, grab the ladder, pastor. This is your last chance before you die. Once again, the pastor insists that the God will deliver him. And predictably, the pastor drowns. But because the pastor goes to heaven, he stands before God one day and he said, hey, Lord, I had unwavering faith in you. I thought you were going to rescue me. I thought you would come through. I thought you were going to magically up from that flood. Why didn't you deliver me? God shook his head and said, what did you want for me? I sent you two boats and a helicopter. <laughs> Badum. That's the bit where you're supposed to like roar with laughter and go, okay, bad story, but, but it's a really important point. We don't have to put faith and fact, medicine or miracle, God or reason in opposition to one another because they usually are together because that's how God works on the earth. So we pray, we act, but here's a final thing that I want to say to you this morning. It's also not something we do on our own. It's something that we do together. You notice in this story, they were spread thin, spread thin over the walls of Jerusalem. And if you're an army trying to defend a city, the last thing you want is you want to be spread out because then you can be picked off. And so Nehemiah, in this amazing act of leadership, what does he do? He says, okay, well, if an enemy comes, sound a trumpet. And when you sound the trumpet, what will happen is all the other people from the other sections of the walls will come running around and they will form up shoulder to shoulder, shoulder to shoulder, and then you can defend the world together. Nehemiah says, fight for your brothers and your sisters. 
I think that's a beautiful advice to us, isn't it, in this new post-pandemic, post-modern, post-Christian world that we live in. Fight for your brothers and sisters. Make partnership in the gospel a priority in your life. You know, I don't know about you, but I've met too many Christians over the years who said, you know what, I love Jesus, I just don't like the church. I love personal faith in Jesus, but I don't want to be part of a Christian community. And the people I know who said that, sadly, don't last very long. And the reason that they don't last very long, because if you've ever seen how, like, if you've ever been on safari, anyone be on safari? If you've ever seen, or even on TV, that's perfectly good enough as well. If you've ever seen a pack of lions hunting, and what the lions do is that they go for, a, go for the, the big herd of wildebeest. And when the herd of wildebeest are together, there's nothing that lions can do. In fact, it's very dangerous for the lions to go anywhere near the herd of wildebeest because they can get trampled. So what the lions do is that they try and pick off individual wildebeest, individual animals to separate them from the herd. And when they're separated from the herd, then what can happen is it's very easy. The lions surround the animals and they can make a kill. Sadly, I think the same thing often happens in the Christian faith, that we can end up thinking, do you know what, I just am going to do this Christian faith thing on my own. It's personal and it's private. But then, sadly, of course, what happens is we find ourselves isolated. That roaring lion that the Bible calls him has no difficulty picking off individual people. Instead, together, we are called to encourage each other, right? If what the enemy wants to do is to discourage and lie to us, then what we are invited to do to our brothers and sisters Christ is to encourage them, to build them up, and to speak truth into their lives, right? That's what we need. That's what I need in my life. When I'm having a dark moment, when I'm having a bad day, I want to know who's my brother and sister who's going to phone me, who's going to text me, who's going to look out for me. He's going to say, hey, Ben, it's going to be okay. You can do this today. God is with you. Because that's exactly what Nehemiah says in verse 14. He says, don't be afraid of them, to his people. Do not be afraid. Remember the Lord who's great and awesome. Fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. You know, that's what it means to be a Christian, is to stand alongside other brothers and sisters in Christ and fight for them. You know, as you look at the person next to you, are you ready to fight for them? When we say, we say at Vintage, as Rachel did a minute ago, stick six, we're not building a branding campaign. Like, we're not trying to build a mega church. We're just saying this, you need a church. You need people in your life who will fight for you. You need to be, maybe this is an even more important question, who you can fight for. And I wonder this morning, as you think about it, who is spiritually fighting for you today? Who has spiritually got your back this morning? And maybe even a better question than that is, whose back have you got this morning? Who are you fighting for in prayer? People sometimes say to me, Ben, how on earth did you plant a church in California? And it's very easy. It's because Laura and I have a lot of people who pray for us. In a few weeks' time, we're going to be traveling to England to go and see a lot of them. And they, they're like, every day, they pray for us. Every week, they pray for us. We regularly send out prayer things. They intercede for us. Like, how might God be inviting you to stand alongside each other? That's why I, I always go back community groups. I'm like, guys, get in a community group. And the reason I say that is because you need to be shoulder to shoulder brother to sister. You need to know who is fighting for you. Because here's the beautiful thing, though, I believe, and I believe it will be a sign of our church and the churches in the future, is that as we stand together, right, in prayer, in action, firmly, in the power of the Holy Spirit, that we will see the darkness move back. 
We will see the kingdom of light come on earth. We will see God's will done on earth as it is in heaven. And at times it will be painful, and at times it will be hard, and at times the enemy will try and knock us off track. But that is what God, I believe, wants to do on the earth, and he wants to involve us. Is that okay? Okay, let's pray.